right. Well, as we come into our time of the preaching of God's word, let's bow uh, in prayer and uh, ask for the Lord's illumination, that he would uh, shine bright and open our eyes uh, to see what only he can show us in his word. Father, as we come to your word, we acknowledge that you speak on these pages, that every word of this book is breathed out by you. And so, Lord, we want to hear your voice. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fill us, uh, that he would bring to our remembrance the things that you would have for us. Uh, Lord, I I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I might speak your utterances. And Lord, in all things, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I am a planner. And uh, maybe some of you are like me, and maybe some of you aren't. I want you to know, that's okay. Uh, but just as, as a, to illustrate that, um, once a quarter, I, I get away and, and I, I plan. Once a quarter, I make a detailed plan for the next three months. Uh, in that time, I look ahead to the next 12 months. Uh, I, sometimes I'll even look as far ahead as five years down the road with just some, some vision and, and planning. I, I, I love putting a plan together, and I really love when everything goes according to my plan. So that means I have a really hard time when an obstacle is put in front of my plan. I had plans for us to gather this morning, and I'm really glad that we're here and we're gathering. Uh, But as today's freezing weather was approaching, I was worried that there might be obstacles to my plan. What if the power goes out? What if we have no running water? (laughs) Etc. But it's not just obstacles from the outside that I'm worried about. Uh, Oftentimes, I'm worried about myself being an obstacle to the plan. so I'm going to be vulnerable here, tell you that I have a recurring nightmare where I oversleep and miss church. As you can guess, it usually happens on Saturday night. And in the dream, within the dream, I wake up and I realize how late it is and I'm struck with you know, just that awful, terrible feeling and the cold sweat and, oh no, like they can't have church without me. Like, oh no, God was going to do so much today, and now he can't. And then I wake up for real, and I have to come preach. And it's a, it's, it's a silly example of a very real fear that often the people of God have. What if I ruin God's plan? What if... What happens to me ruins God's plan. What if something that I do ruins God's plan? Maybe the obstacle is external. If if that person does that thing, man, the plan is ruined. Or if that event occurs, well, then the, the plan will never happen. But then again, sometimes we fear that we ourselves are the obstacle 
If I fail, God's plan fails. If I don't show up, God won't show up. But here's the main thing I want us to hear from Esther 3 and 4 today. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. There is no enemy so clever that he can thwart God's plan. There is no saint so disobedient that she can ruin God's plan. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. And I want us to see two implications of this truth in Esther chapters 3 and 4 today. The first implication of the truth that God can overcome any obstacle to his plan is that God's plan will be opposed. God's plan will be opposed, and we see that in vivid color in chapter 3 of Esther. Uh, We're going to read this story uh, in in bits and pieces as we go along. Uh, Let's begin by reading Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and follow along with me as I read. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerosh. So we are, in these verses, now introduced to Haman, whom the king promoted above all his other servants. All the king's servants bowed down to Haman, all except Mordecai. The other servants tried to tell Mordecai that he ought to bow down to Haman, but he wouldn't listen to them. So the servants went to tell Haman about Mordecai to see if, you know, like, do Jews get a pass on obeying the king's order? But Haman finds out about this, and by no means, he is, I mean, he is filled with fury, the text says. In fact, he's so angry that he can't even dream of punishing just this one man, Mordecai. If it was Mordecai's Jewishness that kept him from honoring Haman, then Haman was going to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of the Persian Empire. So let's see how Haman carries this out in Esther 3, verses 7 through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Hur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman and his allies get together and they cast poor, uh, just like rolling dice. It was a pagan practice of trying to discern the will of the gods. So they're trying to use these uh, dice, use the poor, to figure out exactly when the Jews ought to be destroyed. And they did this during the first month of the year. But according to the poor, the time to destroy the Jews would be the 12th month. So 11 months away. Well, having landed on the date of the gods, Haman went to the king to persuade him then to make a decree to have the Jews destroyed on that day 11 months from then. Haman appealed in his, uh, in, in his approach to the king, he appealed to the king's fragile ego and insecurity, which we saw on display last week. Haman warned about these people who had their own laws that kept them from obeying the king's laws. Haman said it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman appeals to his fragile ego, his insecurity, but he also knew to appeal to the king's love of money. He offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasuries if he would just let Haman have the authority to carry out his plan. Well, we see the king's response in Esther 3, verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
the king who made a rash decree to punish Vashti now makes another rash decree. He lets Haman have his way and he orders the genocide of Jews in all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. Haman was indeed the enemy of the Jews, as the author identifies him back in verse 10. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, stood in a long line of enemies of the Jews. Twice in this passage, Haman is identified as an Agagite. Uh, Agag was the king of the Amalekites in the days of King Saul, uh, the king of Israel. The Amalekites were longtime enemies of the Jews. It started when the Amalekites attacked the Jews as they were coming out of Egypt after the Exodus. And because of their attack on the Jews, God commanded Israel to wipe out the Amalekites whenever they got into the Promised Land. So you may remember uh, how King Saul battled against the Amalekites, but he disobeyed God. And he disobeyed specifically the command to destroy King Agag, which resulted in God rejecting Saul as king. So what we see here is that Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, is continuing in the footsteps of his forefathers, opposing the Jewish people. The Jews were a people who were used to being opposed. In fact, as this order to kill the Jews was going out, the Jews were thinking about some of their other enemies of the past. Notice that the decree went out on the 13th day of the first month. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but that meant a lot to the Jews because that was the day before the Jewish feast of Passover, which was observed on the 14th day of the first month of the year. Haman thought it was his pagan gods who scheduled the calendar. But little did he know, it was the God of the Jews. The God of the Jews is the one who is sovereign over months and days, and all of history. And he's even sovereign over dice. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And in God's perfect timing, the Jews throughout the kingdom would have received news of their coming annihilation the very week when they were remembering how God's powerful hand of providence delivered their forefathers from evil pagan overlords in Egypt. Then, of course, years later, during another Passover week, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be delivered over to be killed by yet another of the Jews' pagan overlords. He would be betrayed for a few pieces of silver. The soldiers would cast lots for his clothes. 
to belong to God's people is to be opposed by the enemy. It's a reality that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, to the fall, when God put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And the serpent has been warring against Christ and warring against his people ever since, and he will until Jesus returns, right? We saw this in Revelation, the dragon, the beast. We see this opposition. The serpent's offspring is at war. And the serpent's offspring takes on many forms. Egypt, the Amalekites, Haman, Rome, even the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. To belong to God's people is to be opposed by the enemy. Jesus said in John 15, 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you just need to know that if you decide to follow Jesus, you need to understand that you are signing up to be opposed. And you're signing up not only to be opposed by evil, but you are signing up to be opposed to evil. Don't think that you can hold on to Jesus with one hand and then hold on to the world with the other hand. That's not how it works. It, you know, it, it's easy for those who follow Jesus to, to think that the way to reach the lost is by showing them that, you know, we're, we're all the same. That, you know, you can be normal and still love Jesus. You can love all the things that you've always loved. Just add on Jesus, too also love him. But the truth of the matter is that the way of Jesus and the way of the world are diametrically opposed to one another. Just like we see in Esther chapter 3, God's people are always going to have laws that are different. So, keep following Jesus, even when it means you have to go against the grain of what is normal and accepted in the world. Don't think just because you're the only one that you're the one who's missing something. For Mordecai, that meant he was not going to bow down or pay homage to Haman, even when his co-workers were pressuring him to do so. For you, that may mean choosing not to be creative on your tax return just because your CPA says that everybody does it. It may mean choosing not to retaliate when you're sinned against, even if everybody in your friend group is telling you that you're justified to do so. It may mean not conforming to the LGBT agenda, even if that means losing your job or even breaking the law. Keep following Jesus even when it means you have to go against the grain of what's normal in the world. Because following Jesus is worth it. In the short term, it'll cost you in this world. 
But we are banking on a God whose plan cannot be stopped. It couldn't be stopped by Egypt. It couldn't be stopped by the Amalekites. It couldn't be stopped by the Jewish leaders and the Romans. Haman, here in this story, manipulates a global superpower, the Persian Empire, all the power of the Persian Empire, and he all aims it toward opposing Mordecai. But in the end, none of Haman's efforts stop God from keeping his promise to preserve his people. And that God who keeps his promises, despite this opposition, is going to keep his promises to you too. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Knowing Jesus as your Savior and your Lord is eternally more rewarding than all the riches this world has to offer. So follow Jesus, even as God's plan is opposed by evil in this world. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. So that's one implication of that truth. Let's consider a second implication of the truth, that God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. And it's this, God's plan does not depend on you. God's plan does not depend on you. Let's read Esther 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Imagine the shock and horror of hearing the news that an execution day had been appointed for you. And not only for you, but for your entire people group. Imagine what it must have been like, especially for those outside of this capital city who had no clue about Haman's beef with Mordecai, to all of a sudden wake up one day and find out that you're going to be exterminated. Here, the Jews had been sent into exile because of their sin. They're, they're scattered. They're, they're, they're not where they're supposed to be because of the sin of the past. And yet God promised to preserve them. It, was God still going to keep his promise? Let's read verses 4 through 9. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. 
Pathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Esther learned that Mordecai was mourning. And so she sent the servant to find out what all this was about. And Mordecai tells Esther everything that had happened. He commands her, go to the king, use your position, advocate for the, for the Jews, advocate for your people. Esther responds then in verses 10 and 11. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. It was dangerous to go before the king. If you visited the king unannounced and he did not want to see you, you would be put to death. Esther had reason to believe that the king did not want to see her. She hadn't been summoned to come into the king for 30 days. And we've seen already just how harsh this king can be toward queens who displease him. So when Mordecai told her to go to the king and advocate for her people who were to be annihilated, she had to calculate the risk to her own life when it came to going before the king. Apparently, Esther thought that it was a greater risk to her life to go into the king to advocate for the Jews than it would be to stay silent and let the Jews be destroyed even though she herself was a Jew. But Mordecai responds this way in verses 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai urges Esther to reconsider. Now, Esther may have thought it was less risky to advocate for the Jews than to do nothing about the king's decree, but Mordecai warned her, no, you, you're not going to be safe just because you live in the king's palace. But as we look at Mordecai's words here, what's so amazing, even though Mordecai is strongly urging Esther, it's not because he believed that Esther was the Jews' only hope. Did you notice that? He actually assured her if she didn't go to the king, 
relief and deliverance would arise for the Jews from another place. So the choice before Esther was not either risk going before the king to save the Jews or let the Jews perish and save herself. The choice before Esther was actually either risk going before the king to be the source of the Jews' deliverance or let herself and her family certainly perish and let deliverance and rest for the Jews come from another source. And so Mordecai, with that in mind, says in verse 14, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He says to her, what if all of those circumstances that led to you becoming queen were meant to put you in the best position possible to be the source of deliverance that would be used to deliver the Jews. What if this is your destiny? Esther responds then in verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews there in the capital city, fast for her for three days. And then she would do as Mordecai asked. She would risk her life by breaking the law and going before the king to advocate for her people. In this chapter, we see Esther come to a moment of decision. She has to decide whether or not she is going to be the source of the Jews' deliverance. But the words Mordecai says to Esther in verse 14 are so instructive. Look at them again. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. The fate of the Jews did not rest on Esther's shoulders. The fate of the Jews was in the hand of a promise-keeping God. God told Abraham, I will, I will make of you a great nation. And he was going to preserve his people with or without Esther. God told David, I will raise up your offspring and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he was going to bring the Messiah through the Jewish nation with or without Esther. What depended on Esther was not the fate of the Jews. What depended on Esther was how she was going to be used by God. Did you know that God's plan does not depend on your obedience? God is going to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea, whether you choose to worship him or not. God is going to redeem people from every tribe and nation and tongue, even if you never choose to share the gospel. 
Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, you're not going to get in his way either. If you choose not to do the right thing, the fulfillment of God's plan will come from another place. And what a relief it is to know that. You may think, if if I don't share the gospel with that person, they may never hear it. If God's plan is for that person to hear the gospel, they will hear it from someone else. You may think, well, if I don't go to that people group, they'll never be reached. If God wants to reach those people, he will send another missionary from somewhere else. You may think, if I don't get parenting right, my kids are going to be messed up forever. God is going to accomplish his plan for your children, and if they don't get what they need from you, he will make sure that they get it from someone else. We read at the beginning of our service from Isaiah 46, in verses 9 and 10, God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is only one sovereign God. So don't carry on your shoulders weight that only God can bear. God's plan does not depend on you. What does depend on you is how you are going to be used by God. Is God going to use your disobedience to accomplish his plan? Or is God going to use your obedience to accomplish his plan? God has given us a tremendous privilege. He gives us the opportunity to be used as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes. Just think of the gift that God gave Esther. He wove together all of the circumstances that led to Vashti being rejected, that led to this Jewish girl rising through the ranks of the other young women to be chosen as the king of the Persian Empire. And he did all of it to bring Esther to the point that she could be used by him as his agent of deliverance. What a gift. What a privilege. And that is the privilege that God gives to each one of his children. Just think of the opportunities that you have to be used by God. The opportunities that God puts in your path every single week. You have the opportunity to tell someone the message of the gospel that can change their eternal destiny. What a privilege. You have the opportunity to speak words that according to Ephesians 4.29 build someone else up and that are actually a conduit of God's grace to those who hear them. You have the opportunity to make disciples of Jesus. You have the opportunity to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have the opportunity to, according to Jude 21, keep your brothers and sisters in the love of God. 
you have the opportunity to love people in such a way that God's love, according to 1 John 4, 12, is perfected in you. What a privilege that God would allow us to be used by him. God does not give you these commands as a burden to bear so that you might shoulder the weight of his eternal purposes. God gives you the privilege of being used by him as he fulfills his plan. God's plan does not depend on you. If you choose to disobey, God will still accomplish his plan. But what a gift that he would give us the privilege of letting him use our obedience instead. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan. Sometimes that obstacle may be an enemy opposing God's people. Sometimes that obstacle may be a saint reluctant to obey God. But God's plan is not deterred by human evil, and God's plan does not depend on human good. God can overcome any obstacle to his plan, even you and me. But why not enjoy the privilege that God invites us into of allowing him to use our obedience to fulfill his plan? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder of the world we live in, that those of us who follow Jesus today live in the same world that the Jews in Persia lived in, that the enemy of Christ is still at work and that we who would follow him will face opposition in this world. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would be content to live for you even as we're surrounded by people who are going the opposite way. But, Lord, I also pray that we would never think that your plan depends on us. Lord, I pray that you would relieve us of that burden and instead fill us with joy at the prospect of letting you use our obedience instead. Lord, I pray that you would teach us the joy of being your instrument. And Lord, that we would have such confidence in your plan that we would never, that we would never fear being an obstacle to your plan, but that instead we would just know the joy of being used by you to fulfill your plan. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.